Thank you, Randy and worship team. I trust your heart is as stirred and as encouraged as mine as I rehearse those truths with you in song. With your Bibles open, Exodus chapter 20 for the reading of our sermon text this morning. Exodus chapter 20, as we have been doing on a weekly basis, we are reading all of the Ten Commandments. We will continue that trend today. I will read them a little differently, not out of order, but I'm going to begin with verse number 18. Just to remind you of the context, the atmosphere, the feel, if you will, of these original hearers as God delivered his holy law. Verse 18, and then back to verse 1. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. Now back to verse 1. God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you your son, your daughter, your male servant, female servant, livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us pray together. Well, Father, during these next moments, let your people who are gathered in this room, those who have joined us online, embrace what is a sacred moment as you, our God, our creator and our redeemer, you speak to us through your word. So let us hear this morning with tender hearts hearts that are receptive, hearts that desire to hear and to know your word so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you, our God. Give us an alertness, O Holy Spirit. Do this work in us that only you are able to do. Draw our hearts close to you, our triune God. These commands are confrontational. Father, with that in mind, give us hearts this morning that hear your word and long to obey, forsaking sin, embracing righteousness. Oh God, do that work in your people here this day. If there would be any unbelievers here or online that are listening, may your law, as it is proclaimed this morning, undermine any sense of self-righteousness. Draw us to repentance. Faith in Christ. 
who is our righteousness. Bless now, Father, as we enter into this holy moment together as your people. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Greg, for your faithful ministry to us. And what a song to prepare our hearts this morning to hear the word of God together. Your Bible is open. I would encourage you, pen and paper in hand, if nothing else, to keep you awake, draw some pictures, maybe. I want to welcome those who are joining us online for our 11 a.m. service. Thank you for, uh, in the midst of this pandemic, your faithfulness to join us and uh, to watch. We look forward to having you back with us, Lord willing, soon. Uh, we are very thankful the Lord has allowed us to return to our normal gatherings, as normal as it gets these days, and look forward to the weeks and months to come, continuing to worship together as God's people. Well, Exodus chapter 20, you are in the midst, we are in the midst of our series on the Ten Commandments. Today we move into commandment number seven. As you have been aware, and as Tim has mentioned these past couple of weeks, as we walk through this particular series, we find ourselves with two tablets. As God reveals his holy law to his people, these two tablets are summarized, if we could summarize them fairly simply and according to Christ. Tablet one, love God. Tablet two, love neighbor. So these tablets come to us and they call us, these commands call us in our duty to God and our duty to our neighbors or to man. If you remember the first tablet, which I trust you do, this duty to God includes this clear authoritative call of God that we, as his creatures, must worship him and him alone. We have no right to bring other gods before our God. He places this exclusive claim over our lives. Not only are we called to worship the right God, but we are called to worship the right God rightly. We are to bring no images before our God. God is spirit. We can do nothing to create an image of God. Any effort on our part would belittle the attributes and character and sovereignty of our God. He sets before us that our lives and our lips are not to misuse the name of our holy God. He sets before us this call to rest in him, to worship and to trust him with all of our lives. This first tablet is a call to us as God's people toward our duty to God, to love him and to worship him with all of our heart, mind and soul. Second tablet, which we find ourselves in this morning, is our duty to man. Tim began this two weeks ago our responsibility toward our parents. The fact that we have this authority structure that is over our lives, that is ordained by God for our good, and that authority structure moves outside the home, even into societal authorities, governmental authorities, and just to declare in the midst of all the difficulties, God has ordained these authority structures for our good. And we're coming back to that command this morning in just a few moments. Last Sunday, as Tim preached, he dealt with, you shall not murder, focusing in, if you will, on immoral killings, and I'm so thankful for his preaching these last two weeks. He has served us so well. I sat over here in this chair with my note and my pen, my paper, and I took notes. He, he challenged me to see the fullness of these commands that God has placed before us in regard to our parents' authority structure, in regard to immoral killings. Tim got a little controversial last week, if you were here. He, he jumped into some areas that are difficult, and we recognize the difficulty of these areas. What makes some of these commands so difficult 
if you will, or at least the positive fulfillment of these commands is our homes, our structures are filled with sinners. So every parent, command number five, every parent and every child, you are sinners. And it makes the fulfillment of that particular man difficult and and dicey. All parents are sinners. Some parents are abusive. And so command five is difficult. Last Sunday, when he spoke of capital punishment and how that is not reflected necessarily in what is being called for in this particular command and how God affirms that reality, it's difficult because we live in fallen society with governments that are full of sinners. We have imperfect systems. But even in the context of imperfect systems and imperfect homes, we have to understand what it looks like and what it means to fulfill the commands of God because his authority, even in the midst of our sinfulness, his authority is not vacated. This this second tablet is a call to us as God's people to focus on our neighbor. I read this Wednesday night. Romans chapter 13, listen to how Paul sees this second commandment and how he sees the fulfillment of the second, or excuse me, the second tablet. He writes, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. This this is the central ethic of the New Testament. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, if you remember in my first sermon on the law, the Ten Commandments, we spoke of a variety of ways the, the term law is used in the New Testament. So when you see that law pop up, you have to ask the question, what laws is the writer speaking of? And he makes it extremely clear in this text. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, here's the law. You shall not commit adultery, command seven. You shall not murder, command six. You shall not steal, command eight. You shall not covet, command nine. And any other commandment, we, we can assume there, he's capturing the whole of the second tablet, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This second tablet, according to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, is summarized just like Christ summarized them, through loving our neighbors. So taking those two tablets and coming to a summary statement, God is concerned not simply with your affections toward him. Tablet one. He is concerned likewise with your affections and your love toward each other. Tablet two. So Christianity cannot be this pullback isolation away from others in worship of God. That is not true Christianity. Christianity engages in the worship of God, tablet one. But true Christianity is concerned with our neighbors, tablet two. One cannot love God. First four commands. And ignore and hate your neighbor. Commands 5 through 10. All right, here's your, that was all intro. Here's your notes for this morning. Here's your outline for this morning. Last week, we looked at the sanctity of life with command number six. This week, we looked at the sanctity of marriage, command number seven. This is a five-part sermon, five questions I'm asking if you're taking notes this morning. I'll repeat these again in just a moment if I go through them too fast now. Number one, we're going to ask the basic question when we look at command number seven, what does this command prohibit? We have to ask that question. It's kind of the basic fundamental question of the Ten Commandments. What does this command prohibit? Number two, we're going to ask the opposite question, what does this command commend to us? I'm going to give you two answers to that. What does this command, you shall not commit adultery, what does it commend to us? Number three, We're going to ask the question, why is there such an emphasis in the Old and New Testament on this command? Because it is everywhere in the Bible. 
either through narrative with examples of wrongdoing in this particular command or through direct statements. We're going to see it in the Old Testament. We're going to see it in the New Testament. Why is there such an emphasis in the Bible about this issue of the seventh commandment? Number four, I think we were on number four. How does Christ, so we live in the new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. Remember, we we made it clear in sermon one, the 10 commandments, they supersede the old covenant. They predate the old covenant. They are the eternal moral law of God. So we have to ask the question, how does this particular commandment, what's it look like for me in the context of the new covenant? And we're going to look at what the apostles say. We're going to look at what Jesus says, because they're all going to speak about the seventh commandment. Now, in my introductory sermon a number of weeks ago, I said this to you, and I prayed this a moment ago. The Ten Commandments can be very confrontational. And at the end of this sermon, I'm going to talk about what happens when they are confrontational. What should be our response? I can promise you this command is going to be confrontational. So let's ask, first question, what does this command prohibit? Let me go back and reread Verse number 14, the basic seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. What does this command prohibit? Here it is. If you have children present today, I told them during the 9 a.m. service, you might have some interesting lunchtime conversations. Text me and let me know how that goes, okay? This command excludes... Now, you're going to, we're going to work through all this for a few minutes. This command excludes any sexual relationship outside of the normative, God-formed relationship of one man and one woman. This command is grounded in creation. As it sets forth these relational boundaries of one man and one woman in this covenant relationship we know as marriage. This command speaks into that. This command recognizes and honors the sacredness of marriage. It's important we see that in this command, you shall not commit adultery. This command is recognizing the importance and sacredness of this covenant union. It is a unique relationship. Marriage. One man, one woman. It is a unique relationship that God designs and God designates as a one flesh covenant relationship. It is a relationship that a husband and wife will share with no other. In every marital counseling session I've ever gone through, I will make that clear, I hope I do, to the prospective husband, prospective wife. This relationship that they are now entering into is called a one flesh relationship. And as much as they love their children, and as close as you mothers feel to your children, that designation is never given between a mother or a child or a father and a child. This one flesh relationship is unique to a covenant marriage. And this command speaks into that. This covenant relationship, if you are married, the scriptures will look at and it will designate it as sacred and holy. Sacred and holy. This command is going to protect that. In the scriptures, the only divinely sanctioned relationship by which one may experience the God-given gift of sexual intimacy is that of the covenant of marriage. Let me repeat that. In the scriptures, the only divinely sanctioned relationship by which a person may experience the God-given gift of sexual intimacy is the covenant of marriage, the marriage between a man and a woman. And this commandment, this simple commandment, you shall not commit adultery, recognizes that God has created that structure for us to experience the good gift of sexual relationships And like our parents, as we honor them, so we are to honor this divinely created structure and union that God designates as marriage. And we honor that by obeying 
his call to us to seek sexual purity only within that bond. We honor God. It's the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment, if you will, frames our sexual ethics. Here's what I mean by that. Everything outside of what I just said, everything outside of marriage is outside of the boundaries of God when it relates to sex. The, the, the seventh commandment frames our sexual ethics. It informs us of that reality. Anything outside of the marriage bond, the marriage covenant, is outside of the boundaries of God's holy law. And the Old Testament is full of addressing this particular issue, the seventh commandment. In the Mosaic regulations, this particular command is dealt with with much specificity. We're not going to walk down all of those paths this morning, but many scholars would suggest to us that the seventh commandment is simply a summary of the various sexual sins that are listed in texts like Deuteronomy 22 and Deuteronomy 27. In other words, it's broad and it's wide. Anything outside of the bounds of marriage is against the law of God. In just a few moments, we're going to run through a variety of New Testament texts, and there's one in particular that we're going to go to that's going to illustrate that very fact. The core idea is that any sexual relationship outside of marriage is a transgression against God's good design. Anytime I would, and I'm, Tim, I'm sure it would be the same, anytime someone comes and they're battling sin in this particular area of their life, more than likely from a pastoral side of things, we're going to point them to somewhere in the Proverbs. It's, it's almost guaranteed. If there's a sexual sin, at some point we're going to have them read through some portion of Proverbs because Proverbs is going to address this issue over and over and over again. Listen to how Proverbs launches into this issue. This is Proverbs 2. It, it heightens our awareness of how dangerous this issue is. This is midstream. The writer says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her, her house sinks down to death, her paths to be departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. You get the sense, if you're going to transgress against holy, God's holy law in this particular area, commandment number seven, just recognize as you move down this path, it is dangerous ground. Nor do they regain the paths of life. Under the Mosaic Code, one who broke this particular commandment, you're probably aware of this in Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, one who broke this particular commandment would be put to death. Such contrast, isn't it, to our society? In just a moment, I'm going to tell you there's something a lot worse than being put to death under the Mosaic Code. Question number two, what does this command commend to us? Law seven. I want to say two things. I'm going to go quickly through this. Number one, what does this law commend to us? This law commends to us the graciousness of God. In that he has given us a relationship in order to enjoy the good gift of sex. He's granted to that. He's, he's formed that. He created it. He divinely sanctioned it in order to us to enjoy this good gift that he has blessed his creation with. This command commends that to us. Two. And this is not from me. This is from Phil Riken. This command commends to us the need to pursue a healthy marriage. Listen to what Riken says. The seventh commandment requires husbands and wives to nurture their love for one another emotionally, spiritually, as well as sexually. Isn't it interesting? We can go to the commandments. We read these commandments. Even as I was reading them a moment ago, and they feel so negative 
right? It's, it's just, it feels like this grinded out, grit your teeth. Oh, here is God giving me another law and I'm going to force myself to obey that. It sort of feels like sometimes that's not the Ten Commandments. Yes, it is law. And yes, God is authoritative. But understand this. God is protective toward us as his people in these laws. He has given us a wonderful gift. And he has divinely sanctioned that gift. Anything outside of those boundaries brings shame and guilt and harm and heartache. I don't need to argue that point. He's good and he's gracious in this. Let me go to question number three. And here's the question for the third question is, why is there such a focus in the Bible about about this issue? On this particular sin? If you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, you're going to see, we're going to see some of them just, you're going to see this idea pop up everywhere. It's going to be threaded through narrative and it's going to be in wisdom literature. It's going to be in prophetic literature. It's going to be everywhere. You get into the New Testament, the disciples, the apostles, they're going to focus on this particular sin. It is a massive issue and it is simple for us to say it's a massive issue within our culture likewise. Why such a focus? Let me give you four reasons to that. Told you taking notes might be best today. Why does the Bible focus so much on this sin? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, this particular sin brings ruin to the home. Parents, children, extended family are left broken. Relationships are destroyed. Families are torn apart. Shame, embarrassment, and humiliation surround the family. This particular sin is a betrayal of a spouse's trust and it undermines the very core of our society, which is family. Think of that. I think that's a part of why the author spends so much time on this issue because it undermines this core institution of our society, which is family. It undermines it. It brings shame and guilt. It destroys and invites chaos into the home. In the mind of God, this is a serious sin. And though our culture nor our society identifies this particular sin as serious, God looks in and he speaks of this transgression and the seriousness and the effects it brings. Tim, he is so much older than me. You know that. I bring that up often. Many, many, many more years of pastoral counseling and seeing homes just ruined by this. Wonderful people, loving, kind people, but this sin takes root and ruins a home. Number two, why does the Bible focus so much on this commandment? Because this particular sin goes at the very heart of loving one's neighbor. The the whole second tablet is focused in on loving one's neighbor, right? This particular sin goes at the very heart and undermines the idea of loving one's neighbor. Thomas Watson, in his commentary on this particular particular, uh, command, writes this. The adulterer not only wrongs his own soul, this isn't a private sin. This isn't a hush-hush, keep away, it only affects me type of sin. Listen to what he says. The adulterer not only wrongs his own soul, but does what in him lies to destroy the soul of another. So he kills two at once. He who commits adultery endangers the soul of another and deprives her of salvation so far as in him lies. Now, what a fearful thing, Watson writes. It is to be an instrument to draw another to hell. This sin has wicked tentacles that reach out and grab the hearts of others and leads them astray from our God. It's a dangerous sin. Number three, the sin involves the breaking of a covenant. The sin does not just affect an ordinary friendship. It breaks a covenant. So last Saturday, I had the privilege of being a part of my daughter's ceremony. 
and I had the privilege of speaking the vows. At some point in the midst of that, and I believe this with all of my heart, at some point in the midst of that, as I spoke to Olivia and her soon-to-be husband, as they rehearsed those vows to one another, at some point, somewhere, in the midst of all of that, God miraculously brought them into a covenant, one flesh relationship. I don't know when, I don't understand all of that. Before our very eyes, God did that. Adultery breaks that covenant. Four, and most importantly, if I could say it that way, this sin undermines the very picture of God's gracious covenant and work in us. You see, marriage is a divinely created institution. The question is, why was marriage created? Well, there's, there's a lot of right answers to that question. Let me give you the number one answer to that question. Why was marriage created? Marriage was created to be a picture of God's love for us in Christ toward his church. That's what marriage is. It's temporal. It's short-lived. It's this life. But what does marriage speak to? Marriage speaks to this eternal truth of God's love toward his people. Adultery diminishes and pulls away and detracts from this glorious truth that marriage represents. So you say, why, why do the scriptures spend so much time on this particular issue? If you forget everything else I just said, remember that truth there because marriage is to be a picture of Christ and his love for his bride. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful to the end. Husbands, model Christ. Well, let's move on. The last question, what about Jesus? What about his disciples? How do they see this in the context of the new covenant? How are we to understand this command? Well, I'm going to take a few moments. I'm going to walk through a variety of New Testament texts. And you're going to see that this, this is not a command that just passes away quietly when we go from Moses to Jesus. Before I speak Christ and his words, I'm going to read Paul. Listen, don't turn, just, just listen for a moment. Sometimes it's good just to hear 1 Timothy 1. Listen to what Paul writes about the commandments. Now we know that the law is good. If anything in this sermon series, I hope we can affirm that. If one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, un the unholy, the profane, for those who... Okay, now here he goes. So he's talking about the law, and then he's going to move into this, and he's going to speak of the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, and the ninth commandment. He's going to bring all those commandments to bear right now in this conversation. Listen to what he says. For those who, here's the fifth commandment, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Sixth commandment, for murderers. I'm going to skip the seventh commandment for a moment and how Paul characterizes it. Move on. Eighth commandment, enslavers, those who steal men. Ninth commandment, liars and perjurers. This is how Paul's characterizing these commandments. It's kind of the fullness of what he's seeing as he looks into the law. Now let me go back to verse number 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and listen to how he characterizes the seventh commandment, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. So in Paul's mind, anything outside of the relationship of a man and a woman in this covenant union called marriage, anything outside of that is a violation of the seventh commandment. 
Any sexual pursuits found outside of this one flesh relationship, be it homosexuality or be it fornication or be it pornography, anything outside of those bounds is a direct violation of the seventh commandment. I think that's what the term sexually immoral kind of captures in a variety of texts. Paul finds this important. Now, I'm going to read five texts. This is, listen, these are five New Testament passages all about Paul except for the last one. And listen how important this issue is in the New Testament. Paul, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. God forbid. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's taking us back to this creational reality. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And here it is. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Listen to how this echoes Exodus 20, who, who there God begins with this idea, I've redeemed you out of Egypt. Now he says, you are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. The implication of that, glorify God in your body. Flee sexual immorality. It's contrary to the purposes of God and his divinely sanctioned gift of marriage. Flee sexual immorality. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Paul, but sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness, must not be even named among you as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no foolish filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You hear that? Paul, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is earthly? Well, listen to how he begins the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul sees the seventh commandment. It is informing his sexual ethics. He understands the seriousness of God as he thinks about this particular subject with his hearers. And lastly, not Paul, Hebrews. Let marriage be held in the honor of all, in honor of among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Listen, there's something far worse than the death penalty prescribed under the Mosaic regulations. What is far worse is this reality that God will be our judge. That's Paul. In Paul's mind, the seventh commandment, the purity of a marriage relationship, rises up. And he addresses the importance of this for us. Now let's go to Jesus. Jesus is going to bring more clarity. Jesus is going to kind of get behind this command, if you will, and talk about the intent. He's going to, if you will, move to the heart of the issue. Listen to what he says. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, here he goes, he's going to heighten it a little bit now, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is going to now address the heart of the matter. This is not simply an external issue. This isn't simply an issue of our actions. This is an issue of the heart. Some of you may have been sitting here this morning or watching online and saying to me without saying it out loud, hey, this isn't my sin, move on. 
I've never committed adultery against my wife. I've never physically had relationships with another person. Well, don't move on too quickly. Jesus is going to step in. He's going to take us to the intent of the law. He gets to the heart of the matter. If one looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent, the sin of adultery has taken place in the heart. Now Jesus has gotten really personal, hasn't he? Now confrontation rises up in all of us. In a way, Jesus brings the 10th commandment and the 7th commandment together. Should not covet, should not commit adultery. If you remember in the 10th commandment, as we've read it each week, you're not to covet your neighbor's wife. This lustful intent that's expressed in adultery. Jesus kind of brings those two commandments together with us, for us, if you will, to help us understand the seriousness of this particular sin. It's the issue of the heart. So let's come to a conclusion now. I'm going to give you two simple thoughts for our conclusion with this seventh commandment. Number one, as the word of God penetrates our souls, which we pray here on a weekly basis, as the word of God goes forth, God would be gracious and take that word and plant it deeply in our hearts. We pray that every week. There are probably very few weeks we don't use almost exact language like that when Tim and I are praying before our gatherings. That the word of God would be planted deeply in our hearts. And I'm praying that right now for the seventh commandment. As this word penetrates into our hearts, our proper response is to probe our hearts, to examine ourselves, and to let the law do its holy work. So, so we hear the law as it goes forth. You shall not commit adultery. We, we, we look in the New Testament. We see how the New Testament writers are grappling with this particular law. We hear the words of Jesus, what takes it to the very heart of the matter. Our souls are the, the intents of our minds. Jesus gets in there as the law has its work in our hearts. Let us be quick to identify our own transgressions. Let's not move on quickly. It's, that's the temptation, right? You get a little uncomfortable. The Spirit of God, through the Word of God, begins to open our hearts and identify the sin that's in our hearts. And all of a sudden, we just want to move on quickly. Let the law do its work. And as the law does its work, let us repent. Knowing that there is full forgiveness in Christ. Knowing that. This sin brings shame. It brings guilt. Unlike any other sin, this sin has a way of opening our hearts to a raw guilt. There is forgiveness in Christ. This particular sin brings messiness into relationships that even after repentance causes a lot of work to be done. But brothers and sisters, in this moment, if a law is doing that work in your heart through the gracious work of the Spirit of God, I can tell you this without question, those who confess their sins will experience the forgiveness that only God can grant in Christ. Number two, Christian, as that happens, we must continue to mortify and attack and we must kill this sin that's in us. This, this is, I, I think this is a part, you could add to that, I guess, to my reasons. This is why the scriptures focus so it, it just draws our hearts away from Christ. It's powerful. It poisons the mind. 
That's why Jesus in Matthew 5, that text that I read a few moments ago, he's not finished there with that. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Verse number 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, in relationship to this issue, cut it off and throw it away. He, he, he grabs the eye, he grabs the hand. The eye beholds, the hand takes. Just like David when he walked out on his porch and he looked up on Bathsheba. His eye beheld her in all of her beauty and his hand took of that which was not his. And Jesus in this text is saying to his followers, you must take radical and de decisive steps in order to mortify this sin. It is not to be coddled or nurtured. It is not to be ignored or allowed to fester. This is a devastating sin and left unaddressed will eat away our souls. Now, you may be saying, aren't you overreacting a little bit to this? I mean, I said this during our 9 a.m. service. This isn't, this isn't an amen sermon. I get that. I would say to you, I'm not overreacting. Because listen to what Jesus says in that Matthew 5 text. He says it twice. It is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then he comes back to it again. It is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Earlier in this text when I said there's something worse than the physical punishment of death under the Mosaic regulations, this is what is worse. To allow this sin to take root in our hearts and to draw us away from God is to bring ourselves under judgment of God. Now, you may be listening to that and you're saying to yourself, wait, 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 I'm a Christian. How can you say I'm under the judgment of God? Well, let's bring some clarity to that. And this is how I want to conclude my sermon this morning by quoting a good Scottish theologian. Listen to what Malcolm McLean says. Jesus is not saying that only sinless people will go to heaven. But he is saying that those who don't care about the sins of their heart are not genuine disciples of Jesus. To be concerned about heart sins is evidence of a new heart. It's the promise of the new covenant. The law has been planted in our hearts. To be indifferent to heart sins is a sign that we, all we have is the old sinful heart, that we have not trusted Christ for salvation. A true Christian hates indwelling sin. Note, he's not saying they're perfect. They hate indwelling sin and attempt through God's grace to put it to death. I can deduce legitimate biblical assurance from the attitude of my heart. If, however, I allow indwelling sins to fester in my soul and perhaps feed them with further sins, then I have no evidence that I am, un that I am converted until I repent of these wrong attitudes of the heart. So we can see how carefully Jesus applied the seventh commandment. If you're here this morning and you hear this sermon and you don't give a rip about the holiness of God and his law in regard to this particular issue. Listen, there is reasons for deep concern in your soul this morning. There's reasons that you need to probe and question whether you are a true believer in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and you have embraced the gospel in all of its fullness and God's kindness to you in Christ. Listen, let me repeat this one more time. This is not the unforgivable sin. It's mercy. It's mercy to turn, to repent. There's forgiveness found in Christ. Amen. Let me pray. I want to pray for you and I want to pray for the marriages of our local church. Join with me if you would. Oh, Father, as we conclude this seventh commandment, it is sobering to recognize how pointed the scriptures are in relationship to preserving 
the covenant of marriage to finding our pleasure in your good design, your good gifts. It is sobering how often the scriptures warn us of this and we know why. Sexual sin is powerful. It grips the heart and the mind. Father, grant us as this law, your word is proclaimed. Grant us the wisdom to identify our failures. O Holy Spirit, open us up to see our sins. And may we quickly repent and flee to Christ. Father, I would pray for marriages here at Randolph Street that they would be good testimonies of your gracious covenant that you have established with your people in Christ. I pray for husbands and wives that this commandment will cause them to pursue healthy relationships in every area of their lives. I pray that this commandment will help us to value the good gift of sex in the context of marriage that you've given us and that our hearts will respond with thankfulness and gratefulness to you, our God. Bless the marriages of Randolph Street. May they thrive and flourish as a result of your word in the seventh commandment and through the scriptures giving glory to you, their God, as they model Christ and his love for his people. If there are unbelievers present here this morning and they hear this law, this command, Father, may this be the very word you use this morning to undermine any sense of self-righteousness, merit of their own, and drive them to Christ this day. Oh God, do that good work that only you can do. This is one of those sermons that sets hard on us. It weighs heavily. But let us be reminded, this is gracious of you, God, to protect us, to give us guidance so that we might live lives pleasing to you, our Father. Be blessed, O oh God, in your people here, those who are watching online, as we pursue these relationships for the glory of you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you would.